the advice that I was getting was, if you want to be a foreign correspondent, go be one. Don't wait around. Don't wait for your turn. Um, and so that's what I did. Welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. We have a really substantive, interesting installment of our Women We Love series today, which is really a series that could just go on and on and on into the future forever. I'm already sensing a part de. Today, we catch up with Kelly McEvers, a co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, who's covered some of the biggest international stories and conflicts of recent years, including the Arab Spring and the war in Iraq. We'll also talk with our colleague Bruce Shapiro, who runs the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma here at the school. And we'll give you our recommendations, what we're watching and seeing and listening to these days. But first, Kelly McEvers. She's already done a range of outstanding reporting in her career. She was a national correspondent based at NPR West, and she came on our radar when she ran NPR's Beirut Bureau and won a, a DuPont Award for her 2012 coverage of the Syrian conflict with Deb Amos. She's done it all. She was tear gassed in Bahrain. She was one of the first Western correspondents to be based full-time in Saudi Arabia, and she spent weeks inside Syria with anti-government rebels. She also recently made a radio documentary about being a war correspondent with renowned radio producer Jay Allison of Transom.org. And I recommend it highly. It's called Diary of a Bad Year. It's really worth listening to. Check it out. I also recommend it. And she has some really good advice for our own adventurous journalism students. We spoke to Kelly in September from NPR's Culver City studio. Kelly, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Happy to do it. Today you're based in California, mm-hmm. co-hosting All Things Considered. But when I listened to your long-form interview, I found out that you started out as a freelancer living and yeah. working overseas. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about those years and how they sure. shaped you and your reporting? <laughs> um, I was a newspaper reporter. That's how I started out. I actually got my first job at a journalism school at the Chicago Tribune. And I also really wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And I was at this big newspaper at the time, one of the best newspapers in the country. And the message I was getting from the editors was like, oh, yeah, you want to be a foreign correspondent? Like, get in line. Everybody else wants to be one, too. Wait your turn. And I started to realize that, like, waiting your turn could be, like, forever. Like, your turn may never come up, you know. It was just, like, a matter of, like, being in the right place at the right time. And and I was just really impatient. And so um, at some point I quit my job at the Tribune um, to take a job in Cambodia at an English language paper in Phnom Penh. Um, Took a huge pay cut, took huge risk. um, But, you know, if you're not, if you want, the advice that I was getting was, if you want to be a foreign correspondent, go be one. Don't wait around. Don't wait for your turn. Um, And so that's what I did. And this newspaper gave me a place to be. I got a salary. I got $800 a month, which in Cambodia was a lot of money. It was great. And we also got room and board. And then when um, the BBC correspondent in Phnom Penh had to go on a few months of assignment in South Korea, we were all at a party. It was New Year's Eve. And she was like, hey, does anybody here know radio? And I was like, I mean, I sort of do. Yeah, I've got a microphone. Like, I didn't really know, right? Um, I definitely was not qualified to be the BBC correspondent um, in a nation far away. And uh, yeah, so began 10 years of 
uh, radio freelancing. It was very slow. It took a long time. I totally had to teach myself. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, I started freelancing for The Beeb and for NPR in the year 2000 and did that for years in Southeast Asia, ended up in the former Soviet Union freelancing, and then eventually the Middle East. Where in the former Soviet Union were you? I focused mostly on the Caucasus, um, South Caucasus and North Caucasus. It was a little bit after the the worst violence in Chechnya, but of course, um, still a lot of stories to be told there, stories that weren't being told. And so I kept going back there the years of 2004, 5, and 6 mostly. Wow. So that was a window of time where you could still sort of safely roam that area. I mean, safe-ish in terms <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I would go I mean, I had a, I was a guest of the KGB for three days during that time, and it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't super safe. Tell um, that story. Tell that story, the, the, tell that story briefly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the thing was, is like, you know, it was, it was a really rough time. You know, the Russian response, the Russians' version of the war on terror was particularly brutal. So I was reporting on the Chechen-Dagestan border. I was actually on a tour of a library, no joke. Like I was with all these librarians. And it was it was a um, it, the day that I got um, detained. It was like a eclipse. We were like out in the woods, like drinking cognac. Like it could not have been a more like benign day. Like it was one of those days where I was like, I'm not getting anything as a reporter, so I might as well just hang out. And I was coming back and there was a checkpoint and, you know, someone took my passport and said like, oh, you're, you don't have the proper credentials. And so began sort of three days of intense um, interrogation and detentions and threats and all kinds of good stuff. There was a car chase, like it was really, it was intense. Um, I would be interrogated for like 14 hours a day and they would keep my passport and then they would say at the end of the day, you're free to go. But I was basically under house arrest. They would follow me back to where I was staying and park a car outside um, and just wait till I woke up the next morning. Like I'd get like four hours of sleep and then they'd, you know, call me. They'd call and be like, it's time to come in again. Um, so but so the the whole you're free to go thing so they could tell the local press like she's free. We're not, you know. But I was not free to go because they had my passport. And you were you freelancing at that time? I was. I was still freelancing. And I was on a fellowship um, with the um, International Reporting Project. Um, so I had a little bit of like institutional backing, which is nice in a situation like that, when to, to not totally be on your own. Um, so, you know, phone calls were being made um, on my behalf, I think, to Moscow and stuff. Thankfully, but I'm sure you can appreciate the vulnerability of the freelancer as opposed to the absolutely, staff. absolutely. I mean, just knowing that there was somebody out there, you know, the director of the program, John Shidlovsky, who's wonderful, and he himself is a, a former journalist and spent years overseas. You know, just the fact that he was calling me every day to say, "Hey, how are you?" It's what's going on. Talk to me. And he was calling my family and talking to them and saying, look, here's what we know. We've been in touch with the Committee to Protect Journalists. You know, just like just something as small as that, just to know that you're not alone is huge. And when I think about freelancers out there in the world going into places like Syria with no backup, it's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. I mean, they obviously need more than a phone call. They need insurance. You know, they need assurances that they're going to get paid a certain amount of money for doing the kinds of work that they do. And they don't have these things. 
Tell us a little bit about your time covering the war in Syria. You won a DuPont Silver Baton in 2013 with Deb Amos, and Mm -hmm. I remember that ceremony. Um, And I remember just the incredibly powerful, moving reporting that you did at that time. When, how long did you cover that story, and what was that like? It was so, it was so powerful, and it's so hard to explain now. I think people see Syria as just this, this pile of rubble and misery. I can't, I feel like as much as I try, I can never explain what it was like in the beginning how wonderful for a minute that feeling was for so many people across the Arab world. You know, they sat and watched on their TVs as dictators resigned in Tunisia and Egypt, and they thought to themselves, we can do it too. And so for a minute, covering Syria was amazing because you thought, you know, decades and decades of living under these dictators, and the young people are finally having their turn. You know, I cannot just, I just can't, say enough of how exhilarating it was to watch that. Right. And we all, we all remember it. I mean, the jury's comments about your reporting from that region at that time, uh, they re- wrote about how you brought a focus on individual stories that made the conflict real in human terms. I mean, I think right. that's been kind of a hallmark of your reporting overall, but specifically in this era. Um, t- how, do, how does how would a young reporter do that? How does one do that? Put a big conflict <laughs> or a sweeping revolution into it's human just, terms. Right. You find the person to tell the story. It's like, what's the origin story? Eventually, I found the guy. You know, like there was a couple of guys who decided one day, they go to mosque, they decide after prayers, we're going to walk out that mosque and we're going to start saying, you know, enough. They weren't saying we want the downfall of the regime. They were just saying... No to corruption, you know, uh, no to dictatorships. The people want freedom, things like that. And just, and they walked, they did it. And there were two mosques in this town. And so they talked to their friends and they're like, all right, you guys come out of your mosque. We'll come out of our mosque. We'll meet in the middle and we'll just walk down the street with open chests, as they say, right? Which means, it's a phrase in Arabic, which just means like, my, you know, they, they'll pull their, their shirts open to show. It's like, we're not armed. We have open chests. We come in peace. And, th- and we'll just march down the street. And that's what they did. And it was like the very first moment of the Syrian revolution. And so you're like, well, I got to go find that guy or the, one of those guys, right? You know, it's like you take the big story and you find the person who can actually tell you the details of it and how it all happened. And as they walked down the street that day, my guy told me, his name was Ibrahim. Before the protest, he went home and he got a big white cotton flower sack and ripped it in half. So it was like this huge white flag that he just was waving in the air like, you know, again, we're we're come in peace. Um, And as they were walking down the street that day, security forces shot into the crowd and killed four protesters, one of whom was Ibrahim's best friend who was standing right next to him. So all of a sudden, this thing, the Syrian uprising is like totally personal. You can imagine, I think, or try to, what it's like to be Ibrahim and standing there waving this flag. Your chest is open. You, you're, you're, this is the best day of your life. And then it becomes the worst day of your life. And then, you know, he carries his friend to the hospital and, um, you know, his friend dies. And then they go to a funeral and there's another protest. And they shoot more people. And that's how it all starts. It's like, if you want to know how the Syrian war starts, like... You need to know Ibrahim's story. So on behalf of 
an entire school of journalism students. How do you find that guy? How did you find that guy? How do you guy? find that guy? You, um, the Syrian activists all know each other. Um, and you just have to, you gotta, you gotta work really hard. I had Syrian colleagues working with me and in my office in Beirut, which is just an hour away. We, we knew that most of the, a lot of the activists from Dada had, you know, were going back and forth between Syria and Jordan. And so we thought, well, let's go to Amman and then let's drive up to the border and let's hook up with the Syrian activists there. And so there, there were just networks of Syrian activists everywhere. I mean, this was a this was a, a a revolution and eventually a war that was covered by citizen journalists. I mean, we were lucky, and it took a while, you know, to get to Ibrahim. But we started with the network, and then we went to ground and actually just started, you know, knocking on doors. You got it's just like it's gumshoe reporting, man. You got it. You just like got to work at it real hard. So you're back in the U.S. now. <clears throat> when, uh-huh. you f- when you first got back, I, I just listened to it again. You made this really powerful radio documentary about your years overseas as a war correspondent with Jay Allison, The Diary of a Bad Year. And can you talk yeah. a little bit about that and how you were motivated yeah, to do I, it? Jay, of course, is one of the greatest living radio producers. And we got in touch, and I had asked him to, you know, sort of uh, – critique some of my work and he said you know I'd love to do that why don't you come to Woods Hole where he's based in Massachusetts and he runs a, a workshop for uh, radio producers and he's like why don't you come talk to my class and then we'll, we'll do some exchange work and it was there it was in the middle of the Arab Spring you know I mean I was just like flying high like I would like one day I'd be in Bahrain next day I'd be doing Syria the next day I'd be doing Yemen like I was in Beirut I was still doing Iraq like I was all over the place and and there was still a lot of euphoria with the Arab Spring and I went to its hole and everybody's like, I'm telling all my stories, my cocktail party stories, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, uh, Jay, being Jay, and and all his colleagues who work there, you know, they would say, but how are you? You know, I'm like, I'm great. This is amazing. This is the best work I've ever done. You know, but they'd be like, no, no, no. How are you? And because when I started to answer, I was like, well, I, I, I don't know. And, and maybe I'm crazy. And, and so and uh, a Jay said, you know what you should do? And this was early 2011. He said, you should just start keeping diaries. He's like, when you can. He's like, ah, you know, no pressure. Just like if you have a moment. He's like, you're always doing stand ups anyway. After you're doing a stand up that you know is going to be in your story, then just step aside if you can and sort of reflect on where you are and what's happening. And that's how it started. And so for you know, a while I was just keeping diaries. Um, and then, you know, um, colleagues started to die. Yeah. And that hurt. Um, you know, so, I mean, it was it was several years. It was two years of keeping the diaries and, and just doing interviews along the way with people who I was asking um, advice of. You know, other journalists, other people who are in this field, like, what does this all mean? What's it all about? Why do we do this? If we know that we could die, we know it because we just went to a funeral. Like, why do we keep doing it? And I could never get, you know, I never, I didn't have an answer for it myself. And so I I looked to other people to try to answer. And I got a lot of different answers. So, Kelly, I think the last time that I saw you, you were at the J School and you were finishing up um, your Ackberg fellowship yeah, at the Dart Center. That's right. Yeah. How was that? How was that experience and would you recommend it and why? Oh my god, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was something that the wonderful Bruce Shapiro had recommended I do. And 
you know, I thought, oh, this could be interesting. I could learn some things about journalism and trauma that, that I don't, you know, I was like going into reporter mode. Like I could, okay, here's a list of things I could learn. I could talk to these experts and, you know, maybe get some information. Maybe I'll write a book, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was like being all like efficient about it. And, and what I didn't realize is that um, I would come to this, this kind of beautiful, safe room full of people who had all been through all kinds of different things and that it was a place to talk and, and be together and feel uh, like you're not alone. And it was amazing. I, that's, that's the part I didn't know was going to happen at all. You know, I was like, oh, it'll be a workshop. And it was really, it was therapy. It was a workshop. We learned a ton. It was just an amazing set of days. I would recommend it to anyone. Kelly, on top of your hosting and reporting duties, you're also the host of a new-ish podcast, Embedded, where you guys take stories from the news and you go deep, which is kind of unique, I think, in this podcast era of talking Hmm. voices, doing actual Hmm, reporting, (laughs) um, going out in the field and giving context to these headlines is, you know, has been so great. How did it happen? How's it going? It's the greatest. I mean... It's a it's a lot of work, but it's amazing. I I got back to the U.S. after being in the Middle East for so long, and after as heart wrenching as it was to leave, I did not want to leave. Like they had to drag me out of there, kicking and screaming. But I knew in my head that I had to go. And but I still wanted to do that kind of work. And people would say to me, "Oh, you're back in the U.S. Just do that thing you did in the Middle East. Like do it here." <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what that means, you know, and. Uh, I started to think about this idea of embedded. I mean, but, you know, my experience with being embedded, of course, was in Iraq. Um, I had been embedded just a couple of times with the military. It was something I did not like to do at all. I was in Iraq at a time when you didn't have to be embedded in order to get the story. In fact, it was safe enough that we all preferred to not be embedded. Um, And so, and and I was, you know, my thing in Iraq was to kind of be embedded with the people, to find the Ibrahims, right? Um, And so I thought, why don't I sort of take that word and turn it on its head a little bit and make a podcast. And I approached NPR about it and they said, okay, let's try it. You know, try a couple of episodes and see what happens. And uh, we ended up with a whole season and a lot of people downloaded it. And it was like number one on iTunes for a good long chunk of time. And we've gotten unbelievable reviews. Uh, And it's really cool that people still want to, you know, um, listen to good journalism. I mean, I think we learned that from Serial, right? I mean, that was the big aha moment of Serial. It was like, wait, investigative journalism, people like it. I mean, the true crime crack didn't hurt. But, uh, you know, that was a wonderful moment, I think, for a lot of us who do this for a living, that we can still, we can do the kinds of stuff we want to do. People are going to listen. So, yeah, we just have to figure out ways to, you know, there's still a lot you have to do to, to, like, how do you how do you keep people listening, right? How do you do thirty minutes? That's it's a puzzle to figure out every episode, and it's really fun, and I love doing it. It sounds really exciting to be innovating, trying new things. That and as a listener, keep up the good work. Um, Thanks. So we have our new class in the building, and um, many of them dream of having the kind of career that you've had. They're drawn to covering conflicts. They want to be international correspondents. 
What's your advice to this new class? Do you tell them the same thing that you should just go out and do it? Just Exactly. Same exact thing that I was told. You want to do it? Go do it. Don't wait around for somebody to give you a job. I mean, that's, you know, like there are fewer and fewer of those anyway. Like uh, make your own thing, you know, like um, it ain't easy. But the stuff that you learn by sort of being your own business is so closely correlated to journalism. I mean, it's hustling, it's bugging people, it's phone calls and emails and, you know, um, making your own way and uh, figuring out all your own logistics. Don't go to don't go to dangerous places without support. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's absolutely and utterly not worth it. And we have to hold news organizations to account. Um, if you're going to go freelance in a, in a dangerous place, um, we should all collectively be demanding support from news organizations. So I would never advise anyone to go, say, to Syria um, alone and without support. I mean, I stopped going to Syria in 2013 when people started getting kidnapped and I work for a news organization because it's just not safe. So, but ha- there's a whole lot of other places where you can go, and it's fascinating. I mean, Colombia, no one's, no, there's not nearly enough reporting going on in Colombia. I mean, just think of the stories um, that are so undercovered um, that aren't necessarily, I mean, Philippines, um, you know, that aren't necessarily in deep, deep conflict uh, that are fascinating and that need to be told. This has been great, Kelly. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your passion, too. It's so infectious. Fascinating talk. And Kelly had so much to say about reporting and trauma reporting. And she actually referenced our own Bruce Shapiro. So we thought it would be interesting to invite him to the studio to talk a little bit about it. Uh, He's an author, reporter, and the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, and he's joining us in the studio. Hello, Bruce. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for stopping by. Um, Bruce, I was thinking about what it's like to work as a journalist these days and what it's like to be a journalist in the United States, how um, sort of the kind of stressors or traumas that we used to associate with international hotspots now have come home on such a level? Well, a lot of those stresses, a lot of the kind of exposure to violence that is at the heart of a lot of news stories has always been there. But I think two things have changed. One is simply economic. It's the speed up of the news. It's the reduction in news staff. It's the new demands on journalists so that a story like uh, the Charlotte protests or a story like Black Lives Matter protests and police shootings are are first of all putting 24-hour demands on individual reporters, are also bringing a kind of toxic stream of very violent graphic user-generated content into newsrooms and onto all of our desks. And there's never a break. There's and there's never, never time there's, to there's stop. There's never a break. And then, in addition, in the U.S., journalists are facing a degree of threat and hostility and harassment that is is rather new, you know, before the Internet, uh, before YouTube and social media all parties in various kinds of social conflict, from the mafia to paramilitaries to to combatants in war, needed journalists, needed us to tell their stories. Now we are at 
best vehicles for messaging or for for re, for repeating uh, stories that that bad guys are putting out uh, over the internet themselves, over Twitter and on 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 YouTube. Uh, you look even at this presidential campaign; how much of the extraordinary stressful, toxic narrative of this campaign has been generated through tweets and through social media. For example, interviews with women who say they've been groped by one of the candidates, a kind of reporting that political reporters never would have had to do before. That's a a kind of trauma reporting, too. Absolutely. So in that kind of a climate, what kind of advice or what kind of resources do you guys make available to reporters? Well, first of all, on the Dart Center's own website, we have uh, www.dartcenter.org. We have a host of tip sheets and uh, videos and tools designed both to enrich reporting on trauma as a topic, whether it's veterans or crime or refugees, these huge crises. And we also have a lot of journalist to journalist and sometimes expert to journalist tips on taking care of yourself, on, on staying resilient. You know, someone like Kelly McEvers really championed the idea of taking care of yourself on difficult assignments. Really, it's, it's Kelly's generation of journalists who sort of came of age talking about these issues in a way that older conflict correspondents and older editors didn't want any part of. Right. They just went to the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a certain amount of (laughs) self-medication is still part of uh, journalism, and that's okay. Um, But there was tremendous stigma around discussing these kinds of psychological injuries, issues like PTSD. I was just going to say this is the same conversation that we're having about veterans of war as well. Yes. It's not about pathologizing reporters. It's not about we're doomed to be messed up by our work. It's recognizing that important consequential reporting on difficult subjects brings some real risks that we need to take into account. And one of the ways that Kelly has been such a valuable ally is in destigmatizing the conversation, making it as much a part of normal newsroom conversation as physical safety equipment as having the right audio gear, simple things like having a sort of operational debrief at the end of a very stressful assignment can go a long way toward keeping journalists resilient and effective. So Bruce, at this point in the podcast, we usually share recommendations, something we've read or seen lately that we want to share with the group. Lisa, do you have anything? Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about uh, PTSD and trauma and related to new kinds of reporting and the rise of removing the journalist as a as a filter or as a go-between. Because what I was struck by this week is this not okay hashtag that was created by a woman who said, you know, all of us, all women have had some kind of this kind of attention, unwanted attention, assault, tweet to me your experiences. And she's gotten a response of over a million women who are tweeting at her. And those stories, they, they are telling new kinds of stories. Those kinds of stories Im, sort of do impose some new challenges and obligations on journalists. Right, because they're completely self-reported. They're self-reported, so verification, um, boundaries, relationships with women who bring these stories forward, all kinds of things come into play now. 
one of the great innovations in reporting, unsung innovations in reporting in the last decade has been thorough, responsible investigative reporting on sexual assault. Mm -hmm. We saw that, I think, in the New York Times handling of uh, two two women making accusations against Donald Trump. The Times went out of its way to corroborate as much of the story as possible, even though there's always a core that involves a moment for which only two people are present. At the same time, in some ways, the most consequential story of the weekend, aside from the presidential campaign, was this remarkable story in the New York Times about the uh, ongoing psychological injuries, the PTSD and other issues the facing um, former uh, inmates of Guantanamo who were tortured. Um, it was a, by Sherry Fink and colleagues at the New York Times. This was a profoundly important and quite innovative kind of reporting that brings all of the science of trauma and the tools of psychology to what has been a political debate. So, Abby, what's your recommendation? I hope it's something a little lighter and more entertaining. You know, Lisa, in these toxic political times, <laughs> I have been enjoying a little escapist viewing on the IFC channel, watching the new documentary now season, um, featuring some spoofs of some old, not old, oldish documentary classics by Jonathan Demme, uh, spoofing films like Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert film, and Spalding Gray Swimming to Cambodia. Um, both those films are spoofed this season. And, and they reenact them? They do. They reenact them. Um, and they're hilarious. I mean, the characters have slightly different names. The band isn't Talking Heads. Instead, it's called Test Pattern. Um, <laughs> and it walks this really fine line between homage and parody very successfully. So you're both laughing with and at it just a little bit. Um, so if you know those original films, and if you don't, you should know them. And even if you don't, you might enjoy watching it because it's the talented Fred Armisen and Bill Hader. Check it out. It is a hoot and a nice escape. Antidote. An antidote. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in, Bruce. This episode of On Assignment was produced by Chava Garari. Thanks, as always, to our funders at the Jesse Baldupont Fund and, of course, to Columbia. Our music is by Dylan Nowak, and our sound engineer is A.J. Mangone. Special thanks to our inestimable DuPont Fellows, a.k.a. our resident millennials, Meg Dalton, Val Caval, and Kim Flores for taking care of our social media and, of course, for so much more. So much more. And, of course, thank you, dear listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod. You can visit us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can email us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment.